Our sermon this morning is on Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Turn to Romans 8 in your Bible if you brought it. If not, grab a pew Bible. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Romans chapter 8 on page 887, but the very bottom. So you will be on 888 for most of the most of the sermon. But turn there. Um, and yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's read and think together about these first few verses of Romans uh, chapter 8. John Stott, uh, one of the... One of the commentaries that I've been leaning on the most as I've been, uh, you know, thinking and meditating on uh, the book of Romans, says that the eighth chapter of the book of Romans is without a doubt uh, one of the best known and best loved chapters in the entire Bible. Uh, one, one theologian describes Romans 8, so he says that, he says that if the, um, if scripture, if the entire Bible was a piece of priceless fine jewelry, like a diamond ring or something like that, uh, then Paul's letter to the Romans would be kind of the cre- like the the crown, the diamond on top of it, right? The 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 most kind of emphasized um, piece on on that ring would be would be Romans. And he says, but then um, of all of the facets that are on that diamond, the the, the diamond that's most prominently dis- displayed, of all of the facets on it, the 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 best, like the one that sparkles the most in the light and that kind of thing, would be Romans chapter eight. So he would say. Uh, this, this theologian would say that, yeah, Romans 8 is kind of the distillation of the book of Romans, which itself is the distillation of the entire uh, Bible. So, Romans 8, we're going to spend the next month or so uh, in this uh, chapter. Um, and it is, again, one of the more encouraging and more uh, soul-strengthening uh, uh, chapters in the, the Bible. It has been that way, you know, throughout church history, because of what it says about God, what it says about salvation what it says about Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us, what it says about uh, how we have received salvation from God through Christ and how we can look forward to, right, we can persevere through suffering in this life uh, in anticipation of and looking forward to eternity with God in his, in his presence, right? That's kind of what Paul is kind of walking through in the, the eighth chapter of Romans. And chapter Romans 8 uh, interestingly, kind of stands in contrast with what comes before it and after it. Romans 6 through 7 before it and Romans 9 through 11 after it. Um, Romans 8 kind of has a different flavor than either. Romans 6 through 7 is almost like a, kind of like a, a nerd, like a nerdy deep dive into a question that was raised from Romans 1 through 5, right? Romans 1 through 5 is, is that, that God saves uh, sinners through the perfect life and sacrificial death of his son Jesus in their, their place. And so the question is raised at the end of chapter 5, if Paul's gospel is true, right? if, if uh, sinners are saved by God's grace, like you said, Paul, in Romans 1 through 4, and if our salvation is secure and we can't lose it and we can know that, that God is going to keep us, like you said in Romans 5, then what's stopping us from sinning uh, it, however we want and, and just, you know, presuming that God is going to forgive us anyway. So Romans 6 through 7 is a deep dive into that question about, about uh, like, how, how, why shouldn't we continue sinning so that God's grace will increase and he'll save us anyway. Romans 9 through 11 is a deep dive into another question that is also kind of an objection about Paul's gospel, right? The idea is, um, if Paul's gospel is true, that sinners are saved by grace through faith, like Paul taught in Romans 1 through 4, Right? And if, and if uh, we can't lose our salvation like Paul taught in Romans 5, well, um, what about the nation of Israel? What are we to do with 
all of these people in the nation of Israel, throughout the history of the nation of Israel, some of whom appeared to have faith in God, some of whom did not. What, you know, if Gentiles can be saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, then does that mean that all of God's promises to the nation of Israel are just all null and void? And Romans 9 through 11 is a deep dive into that question. So 6 through 7 and 9 through 11 kind of buttress Romans 8 with these kind of, uh, yeah, lawyer-like kind of arguments and, and discussions of these issues. Romans 8, right in the middle of them, is just this, like, um, kind of a reiteration of and, and distillation of what we saw in Romans 1 through 5, which is about the love of God, the grace of God, the surety of our salvation, and how we can know and trust that God can and will save us and, and keep us. And so it's, I mean, if you were to ask me, you know, one, what's one chapter in the Bible that I should read or meditate on or, or memorize that would be most profoundly helpful to my soul, I would probably point you to Romans chapter 8. So I'm excited to spend the next few, few weeks in it. Um, Romans 8, 1 through 11, where we'll be this morning, uh, is kind of um, almost the, the mirror image of or, or the, the, yeah, kind of the flip side of the coin of what we saw a couple of weeks ago in Romans 7. Um, the, the tail end of it. That passage, Romans 7, 7 to 25, is kind of the picture of a person struggling to obey the law, but failing to do so, right? Struggling in their own power, absent any sort of power from the Holy Spirit, failing to do so because they've been overcome by indwelling sin. He says things like, the very thing that I want to do is that which I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do are the things that I find myself doing. Right? So, so it's the picture of a person trying to obey God but failing uh, apart from the, the Holy Spirit and his power. Romans 8, 1 through 11 is the picture of the spirit-filled life of a Christian. Right? A, a Christian believer who loves God and who the Holy Spirit is, is filling their, their heart and their, and their life. And, and then that person walking with God uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit as God has, has intended it. And so um, we're going to look at three... Uh, three points in, in these 11 verses. It kind of breaks down. So uh, Romans 8, 1 through 4 is uh, we're going to look at uh, what God has done for us. Romans 8, 4 through 8. So the next four verses is what God has called us to do in response. And then finally, verses 9 through 11, uh, how God empowers us to do that which he's called us to do. So what God has done for us what God has called us to do in response, and then how God empowers us to do to do that that thing. So uh, let's read through it, and then let's uh, let's jump in. It says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the flesh, or who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their mind on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. The mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
those who are in the flesh, cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we uh, pray that you would give us grace this morning. Grace to listen to your word. Grace to behold your glory in your word. Grace to trust in you and and to to be conformed to the image of Jesus as we we hear and, and respond to your word together. So we just invite you and we ask your grace on this time. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so first point, what God has done for us. It's going to be these first four verses here. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which uh, might seem um, run-of-the-mill. It might seem like old hat for us today, but it's big news for a person who's reading the book of Romans for the first time, right? There, there's Paul has gone to great lengths in the first seven chapters of this book to support his thesis that there is, in fact, condemnation for all people, right? Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed against heaven, against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. Romans 2, you have no excuse. The judgment of God rightly falls on you. Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. Every single person will stand before God and be utterly silent and held accountable to God. Romans 5, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 7, sin seized an opportunity and came alive in me and deceived me and produced all kinds of sinful desires in me and and killed me. Right Over and over, Paul is reiterating that there is condemnation for all people, and rightly so, we're guilty before God and deserving of his wrath and judgment and condemnation, which is why the news that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is, is uh, remarkable. It is uh, staggering, and it should uh, be, you know, it, it, should, it should capture our attention, and it should cause us to stare at it and to, to consider it and to, to marvel at it. The news that there is no condemnation for you is not particularly impressive if you understand yourself to be holy and righteous and worthy of God's favor and blessing. Right? If, if you understand yourself to be a pretty good person that deserves God's blessing and favor, then, the, then someone telling you that there's no condemnation for... It's like someone calling you on the phone and saying you're not going to go to prison for the rest of your life. Thanks, I guess, right? I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I wasn't planning on doing it. Had no reason to think that I was going to be, be heading that way. So, I mean, I guess it's, I guess it's okay that you, that you told me, right? But, but if you've read Romans 1 through 7, 
and you rightly understand yourself to be guilty before God, deserving of His righteous wrath, and, and actively careening toward the, the ditch that is God's judgment for all of eternity, if that's how you see yourself, then, then Romans 8.1 is the best news that you could ever hear, and it is the most incredible, right? Uh, it's, the, it's, it's news that you don't feel entitled to. It's news that is, that is worth marveling at and meditating on, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So that's the what, right? There is no condemnation is, is, is a thing that Paul is saying that is true. That's the what. And then verse 2 is the why. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ because for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So the reason why you don't have to fear condemnation, the reason why there is no condemnation for those of you who trust in Jesus is because you are no longer in the old system, the old paradigm, the old economy in which you did have to fear the condemnation of God because there was it for you, right? In the old system of the law and sin and death, there was condemnation for you and for everyone else in that system, in that paradigm, but God has set you free from it. God, through the law of the spirit of life, has set you free, right? So, so the law of sin and death is, is the, the, the old way that, that everything in the world worked, the, the spiritual economy that governed everything prior to Christ. So, so every single person, right? Adam sinned, rebelled against God, invited sin and its consequences into the world, and then everyone that was born since was born with a sinful nature that they inherited from their father Adam. And so they're, they're born into this system where they are required to obey the law, but where they are, uh, by nature, inherently uh, inclined to not obey the law. And then the law points that out as such and, and kind of renders them guilty and, and deserving of death and judgment. The law of sin and death is this old way, this old system, wherever it is born a sinner... The law condemns them as a sinner. They are judged by the law and rightly experience judgment, condemnation, and punishment for their sin. That's the, that's the way of, that's the law of sin and death. But God has saved us from that and saved us to a new way, the law of the spirit of life. So instead of this cycle of accountability and guilt and death, and condemnation. There is no condemnation because you, you were formerly under that way, but now there's a, you're, you're in a, a new way. You were, you were born with a sinful nature that you inherited from Adam, but now you've been given a new nature by God that, that loves God instead of sin and hates sin instead of, of hating God. You were on a trajectory that was heading toward eternal punishment and death. Now you're on a trajectory that's headed toward eternal righteousness and joy and life. So, so the old way is the law of sin and death. The new way is the law of spirit of life. So what is true? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why is that true? Because God has set you free from that old way that resulted in condemnation and he's given you a, a new way. You're now in, governed by a new economy that results in righteousness and life. And then verses 3 through 4 so you've got what in verse 1, why in verse 2, 
verses 3 and 4 is how, right? How God went about setting you free from the law of sin and death so that you could have no condemnation. And the way, the, the, the means by which he's done that, the how, is that God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's a lot to unpack there, so we'll just kind of work, work through it phrase by phrase. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Namely, save sinners, reconcile sinners to God for all of eternity. The, the, the salvation and reconciliation that you enjoy is something that was secured and accomplished for you by God. And the reason why it was secured and accomplished for you by God is, is because it was something that you could not do for yourself. Right? The, the, the human beings under the law cannot ever be good enough, smart enough, successful enough, holy enough, spiritual enough, enlightened enough to accomplish your own... There, there, are, in, there are religions, belief systems schools of thought that are that are based around this idea that that you can you can do like you don't need God to do anything for you because you can do it for yourself obey these laws you know follow follow this noble eightfold path do these five pillars right do this thing do these things you will be rewarded with salvation and love and acceptance. There's a lot of religious systems that teach that. There are a lot of people that believe that. And the gospel of Jesus is directly at odds with that kind of thinking. Right? The gospel says, you cannot accomplish your salvation on your own. You need God to do it for you. You need God to accomplish that which you cannot accomplish yourself. Earning God's favor on the basis of your own accomplishments and works is impossible. It would require perfect obedience in word and thought and deed throughout the entire, the, the entire course of your life, never breaking any laws or doing anything that God forbids, never failing to do anything righteous and godly and holy and loving that God requires or desires of you. What you say, do, think, the motivations and underlying attitudes and heart postures that reside beneath all of those behaviors, total perfection in all of those areas for your entire life. That's what it would require if you were to accomplish your salvation on your own, which none of us can do. So God has done what we could not do. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And what he did was he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So, so God exists from all of eternity past. God has eternally existed as a Trinitarian community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Right? Enjoying one another in community with one another, love and, and, and grace for, for one, one another. And 
God, uh, with, within that trinity, there's this covenant where God the Father sends God the Son into the world, specifically on a mission to save sinners from their, their sin. So, so Jesus is born into the world as a human being, fully human, flesh, blood, person. God himself became a man and he entered into the, the, the human race in the likeness of sin. The, the likeness of sinful flesh, meaning that, that Jesus, by all accounts, looking at him, was a, a regular human person, right? He wasn't, he wasn't a figment of someone's, he didn't have a halo, he didn't have like some aura of light kind of shining down on him from, from you know, like Jesus for much of his life was a, a regular, looked like a regular person, was indistinguishable from a regular person. The difference though was that he did not have a, a sinful nature. So he was born in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he was not himself a sinner, right? Everyone else that had inherited a sinful nature from their parents, that kind of dates all the way back to Adam, our first father. Jesus didn't inherit a sinful nature from his parents because he had one human parent. He was born of a virgin, Mary. And so, so this virgin, this, this uh, miraculous birth whereby Jesus was born to a woman without a human father, he somehow escaped the inheriting the, a sinful nature that every other human being has. And so he's born in the likeness of uh, sinful flesh, but he is fully God, does not have a sinful nature, is not guilty of sin. So Jesus is born in the likeness of sinful flesh, and then there's two things that Paul kind of cites that he does after having been born in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemns sin in the flesh, and then he fulfills the righteous requirement of the law in, in us. Fulfills the righteous requirement of the law and condemns sin in the flesh, which is a, a reference to, on the one hand, Jesus' perfect life of active obedience to the Father, and on the other hand, his sacrificial death, dying for the sins of his people. When Paul says Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law, he means that uh, that perfect life that, I, that we just kind of looked at, that we could not do, that God had to do for us, that, that perfect life of living, you know, never doing anything wrong, never failing to do anything right, word, thought, deed, right, actions, attitudes, motivations, all of that for the entirety of one's life, Jesus did all of, of that. Jesus obeyed the law, Jesus fulfilled the law, Jesus loved God with all of his heart and mind and soul and strength. Jesus loved his neighbor as himself. And so as a result, Jesus is the only person who has ever lived who uh, at, the, at the culmination of his life would have had the right to walk into the presence of his father and demand that God give him what he is owed, right? That God give him the love and acceptance and approval that, that he deserves on the basis of his righteous life. Jesus is the only person who's ever lived who could have made that sort of claim in the presence of God. And yet, Jesus, at the outset of his life, he did not do that. He did not walk into the God's presence and demand that God give him what he deserved. Instead, at the culmination of Jesus' life, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, begging his father to find another way 
right? Please take this cup from me, right? He's, he's begging God to, to find some way to save sinners that doesn't involve him dying on a cross. And then he's arrested, he's accused, he's condemned, he's beaten, he's tortured, he's hung on a cross to die a brutal death. On the cross, Jesus experiences the wrath of God that should have been experienced by you and by me and by all of his people. Jesus pays the penalty for sin, not for his own sin because he was sinless, but he pays the penalty for my sin and for your sin, which is why Paul says that he condemned sin, right? The, the, the atonement, the cross of Christ, Jesus dying on the cross at the hand of his Father was how God publicly condemned sin in the flesh forever. Jesus' death on the cross was this huge banner, this neon sign of God saying, this is how bad sin is and this is how much I hate sin. I hate human rebellion this much. I hate pride this much. I hate idolatry this much that I am willing to punish my own son to condemn sin. If you want to know how much God hates and stands opposed to sin, then, then look no further than Christ's death on the cross. That's God declaring how much he hates sin and making it public knowledge on the record. There's this divine dilemma, right? The, the cross of Christ is this solution to this divine dilemma where, on the one hand, God loves his people that he has created so much that the prospect of living apart from them for all of eternity is, uh, would, would break his heart. And God is so committed to his own righteousness and his own glory, and God hates sin so much that the prospect of forgiving sinners, turning a blind eye to their sin, and welcoming them into his presence is something that he cannot let happen. So God loves his people and wants to save them. God loves his holiness and cannot ignore or turn a blind eye to sin. And so at the cross, God does what we could not do. He sends his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law and to condemn sin in the flesh. Jesus dies in our place so that we can live and be reconciled to God and be uh, free from any condemnation that we otherwise would have deserved because that condemnation was was poured out on Jesus at the cross. So there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ because God has set us free from the law of sin and death through, by, sending his son to live the life that we could not live and die the death that we deserve. It's kind of the what, the why, and the how. And then the rest of verse 4 is the, the who. Right? Who, who that is for. Right? The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled for those who walk not according to the flesh, but who walk according to the Spirit. So this is where we transition from 
point one, which is uh, what God has done for us, to point two, which is what God has called us to do uh, in response. And what he's called us to do is to walk with him according to the Spirit. So, so again, this kind of uh, is, is, you know, a callback to Romans uh, chapter 6 through 7. But the idea is when you trust in Jesus and when you become a Christian, it's not like you just get some golden ticket that, that, of salvation from God and then you can just go about your merry way unchanged, the same person that you were before. That's not what uh, salvation looks like. The, the idea is that when you become a Christian, you receive salvation from God and, and a change takes place, a death and a resurrection take place. You go into that salvation event walking according to the flesh, loving yourself, living for yourself, loving sin, opposed to God. But then you come out of that salvation event according to the Spirit, living a new life, obeying and following after and seeking to please the Spirit of God instead of your own self and your own desires. So the who that this, that this salvation experience Paul's talking about is those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? We have to kind of, you know, take a broader look at the New Testament to know exactly what, what Paul means when he says to walk according to the, the Spirit. One illustration that he uses in the book of Ephesians, um, maybe an odd one, but uh, he uses the illustration of intoxication with, with alcohol. He says, don't get drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's obviously a lot about intoxication from alcohol that is fundamentally different from uh, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. They're different in almost every way imaginable. But, but the reason why Paul mentions those two together in the same breath like that in Ephesians 5.18 is because when you get drunk on alcohol, the alcohol that you've consumed is now the driving force that's controlling who you are and what you do. You act different under the influence of alcohol than you would have acted otherwise because the alcohol is working through you, causing you to do things, often things that are stupid or foolish or dangerous, but the the alcohol is is working through you and causing you to do things. And Paul is saying, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, when you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is working through you and causing you to do things that you would not have otherwise done on your own, things that are righteous and loving and, and godly. The Holy Spirit works through you, causes you to to do them, similar to how alcohol would have worked through you and caused you to do things that are foolish and and sinful. And what what is it that the Holy Spirit causes you to do? How does he he animate you to live when the Holy Spirit is working through you? You have to look at Galatians 5 for that. The, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So walking not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit means living like that, living a life that looks like that through the power of the Holy Spirit as He works through you and starts to influence your words and thoughts and actions. That's what it means to walk according to the Spirit. At which point, someone might say, that's all fine and good. That, that that's how 
That's what it looks like to live according to the Spirit. But, like, what's my... How do I go about... How do I do that? How do I go about getting there in my life? What's the tangible next step in my life that I can take so that I can start to walk according to the Spirit and live that life of the fruit of the Spirit? The answer is by setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, which is what we see in verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. Set your mind on the flesh is death, but to set your mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does, it can, does not submit to God's law. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So Paul's saying, if you want to walk in the Spirit, which we all have to do if we want to be part of that number that receives the grace of God that Jesus has, has died for and freed us from condemnation, if you, want to be a, if you want to walk according to the Spirit, then the way that you go about it is by setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. What you think and what you think about is going to inform what you do and how you live. Which is not, you know, this is nothing terribly new or, or innovative. This is kind of just common sense. That, that what you think informs what you do. What your mind dwells on is going to, is going to affect how you live your life, right? How you prepare beforehand is going to affect how you act in the right uh, the, the, the army that, that, that wins in wartime is the one that was that spent peacetime better preparing itself for that wartime right the, the, in, 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 the, the NFL team that wins on Sunday is probably the one that that was better prepared that spent Monday through Saturday better preparing itself for the game that week. If you practice hard, you shouldn't be surprised when you play well and win. If you blow off practice, you shouldn't be surprised if you get beaten or embarrassed. Right? All the, all the you know, read, read books about leaders, all, all the, you know, all the books on leadership that I've read uh, all have a similar kind of theme running through them, which is that if you want to, you know, achieve long-term productivity, effectiveness, success in leadership, then the, the, a big key is, is by preparing and investing in your long-term productivity beforehand, right? Uh, being proactive instead of being reactive, right? So reactive leadership is reactive productivity is you just show up to work and you do whatever happens to be in front of you that day. Whatever fires need to be put out, you just try your best. Phone calls, emails, issues, problems. Just try to keep your head above water all day until five o'clock. Then you punch out and go, go home, right? This urgent thing that I didn't anticipate, but it needs to be addressed right now. That's like reactive productivity. Proactive productivity, which they will kind of, you know, counsel you to do is the opposite, right? It says, I'm not going to be at the mercy of whatever things are screaming at me that they're the most urgent right now. I'm going to proactively and intentionally decide how to invest my time more often than not, I won't be investing my time in all of these short-term things that are claiming to be urgent, but instead I'm going to invest my time in the long-term things that I understand to be the most important. Like 
building a culture, developing a team, mentoring people, tr- you know, training them to be excellent, those, those kinds of things, right? All the books I've ever read say if you want to be long-term productive, you have to be a proactive leader instead of a reactive leader, which is good counsel. And I think it's just breaking down this insight. It's just, it's just you know, pulling from Paul's idea here that if you want to walk according to the Spirit, if you want to live a successful, godly Christian life, it starts by proactively setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. You won't walk according to the Spirit if you don't first set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Which we do by practicing the spiritual disciplines. Reading Scripture, meditating meditating on Scripture, memorizing Scripture, spending time in prayer, silence, solitude, journaling, reading good books, listening to good teaching, learning, being a part of a, of a healthy church, gathering, worshiping, serving, small groups, discipling relationships. All of those spiritual disciplines that God has given us are, are tools that, he, that, that are specifically for the purpose of setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. Right? The more of those things that you do, the more your mind will be set on the things of the Spirit which means the better positioned you will be to walk according to the Spirit. Right? Walking according to the Spirit is all of the behavioral end games that you, you know, that, that you have, oppor- like, if, as you walk through your day, you have dozens, if not hundreds of opportunities to either walk according to the flesh or walk according to the Spirit. Someone says something that hurts your feelings. You can either uh, be vindictive and retaliate and say something harsh back to them, or you can forgive them and extend grace and charity to them. Someone, you know, cuts you off in traffic. You can either, you know, let that go, or you can run them off the road. You know, uh, kids disobey, break things. They're disrespectful. You can uh, be patient and teach them and disciple them, or you can lose your temper and blow blow up at them, right? There's, there's dozens of opportunities throughout the day to either walk according to the Spirit or walk according to the flesh, and which path you take is likely going to be determined by whether or not you have beforehand proactively set your mind on the things of the Spirit, which you do by practicing the spiritual disciplines. If you want to walk according to the Spirit in your life, you start by setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. So you train your brain, train your heart, train your soul so that you'll be ready to obey God when the opportunity presents itself. So, verses 1 through 4, what God has done for us, He's freed us from the law of sin and death by sending His Son to condemn sin and fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Verses 4 through 8, what God has called us to do in response to walk according to the Spirit by setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. And then finally, verses 9 through 11, uh, what God has, how God has empowered us to do that which he has called us to do. By coming and, and taking up residence inside of our hearts and indwelling us so that he can empower us to walk according to the Spirit. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. It's not like God says, 
your job that I'm calling you to do is to walk according to the Spirit. Here are some tools called the spiritual disciplines that you can use to do it. Good luck. Best of luck to you. I hope that, I hope that it works out. Right? God actively draw, comes to us and, and takes up residence inside of our hearts. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of us. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, you say, well, well, he doesn't dwell in me. Well, yes, he does, because anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ, which is another way of saying everyone who does belong to Christ does have the Spirit of Christ living in them. Right? If you trust in Jesus and he has forgiven you of your sins and you belong to Jesus, then Jesus has given you his spirit and he dwells inside of you. That's a, a fundamental A, whatever it is, A plus B equals C, right? Like A, what is it? A equals B, B equals C, therefore A equals C, right? Like an inviolable law is that, that all Christians who trust in Jesus have the Holy Spirit living in them, dwelling inside of them, and empowering them to live the the Christian life. There are people who don't believe that. There are teachers who teach that you become a Christian, and then at some point later on, you have this, there's a second event where you, where you receive the Holy Spirit, and that's where things really start to, you know, heat up. That's where, that's where you, you know, start to live the real Christian life. So there are Christians who believe in Jesus that don't have the Holy Spirit, and then there are Christians that believe in Jesus that do have the Holy Spirit, and they are the ones that are walking with God and, and glorifying with God. And, and, and Paul makes it very clear that there's no such thing as a Christian who trusts in Jesus who does not have the Holy Spirit living in them, dwelling in them. If you belong to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's job, the Holy Spirit's role in your life according to John 14 to 16, is to lead you, help you, guide you into all truth, convict you of sin, point you to Jesus, help you to remain and abide in him, right? God gives the Holy Spirit to his people so that he can help them to walk with Jesus, so that he can help them to set their minds on the things of the Spirit, so that they can walk according to the Spirit. You say, all right, well, that's great. I'm glad that God has given me his Holy Spirit. I'm glad that the Holy Spirit, uh, his role is to empower me to live the godly Christian life. But, uh, Ben, you don't, you don't know how, like, verse 10, right? If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So I've got these two, these two competing forces. I've got my flesh, my sinful nature that's dead because of sin, and it's pulling me back to sin and death. And then there's the Holy Spirit in me that's pulling me forward to life and righteousness. But, but you don't know how strong and how powerful of a pull my sinful nature is. I'm, I'm pretty sure that the, the sinful nature that's pulling me back is stronger than the Spirit that is pulling me forward to life and righteousness. And verse 11 makes it very clear that that is, that, that the the, the, the pull of your sin and your flesh cannot out-pull the pull of the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit that dwells in you. 
So you might feel at times like the pull of your sinful nature is stronger than the pull of the Holy Spirit, but it's not. The, the pull of the Holy Spirit that's pulling you forward is the most powerful force that exists in the universe. It's that of an omnipotent, sovereign, all-powerful God who can do anything. The, the same Holy Spirit that dwells in you, that is empowering you to live the Christian life, is the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus, Jesus on, on Holy Saturday, between Good Friday and Easter, Jesus was a dead body, crucified, dead, buried in the earth, in a grave, cold, dead corpse on a stone slab. And the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. New life, resurrection body, resurrection power, victory over Satan and sin and death, ascended to heaven to the right hand of the Father, reigning on his throne forever and ever. That's the track record that the Holy Spirit has, right? If you want to know how much power the Holy Spirit has to overcome Satan and sin and death, that is his track record. And Paul is saying that same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead with that infinite, unimaginable show of and display of power is the same power that works in your life to help you overcome sin, set your mind on the things of the Spirit, and walk according to the Spirit. He lives in you already, and He can give you power over sin just like He raised Jesus from the dead. Sin is incredibly powerful. Your sinful nature is dangerous. It's, it's deadly. We should be guarding against it. We should be aware of how powerful it is. But the Holy Spirit is more powerful than your sin and your sinful nature. And the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And if the Holy Spirit could raise Jesus from the dead, then he can also raise you from the dead, give you new life empower you to walk with Jesus and glorify him. Romans 8, 1 through 11 is, that, is, is, is making it painfully clear what God has done for us. He's freed us from the law of sin and death by sending his son to condemn sin and to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. What God has called us to do in response to, to walk according to the Spirit by setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. And then finally, how God empowers us to do it by sending His Holy Spirit to come and take residence in our hearts and give us supernatural power to obey Him and to, to walk with Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for doing what we could not do in and of ourselves. For sending your Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin in the flesh and to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Lord, we pray that we could respond to that good news rightly by setting our minds on the things of the Spirit and by walking 
according to the Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, who now dwells in us to give us new life and power over sin. Lord, we we pray that you would help us to see you and trust you and obey you and glorify you. It's in Christ's name that we pray.